Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name's Gary Burrow and I'm joined as usual by club historian Rick Glanville. Hello mate, how are you keeping? Uh, Rick, I'm doing very well, thank you. Great. I've just been thinking, though, the closest I've come to show you this at Stamford Bridge <laughs> is an incident with Henry Kissinger. I won't go into the full details yet, but suffice it to know, if it wasn't for the security people, no one would even know he was there. So trying to protect <laughs> him, and all they were doing was drawing attention to him. But as a club, Chelsea had been associated with celebrity fans right from the outset in 1905, right up to WWE superstar John Senna, been spotted in Todd's director's box in May this year. And that touch of stardust is our topic today, Towers yeah. of Chelsea Hollywood. But who exactly are we talking about, Rick? Oh, loads of people, mate. I mean, how do Wrecker Welsh, Steve McQueen and Blur, um, and others from screens big and small, theatre and the music world grab your gather? Plus, we have my old friend, Chelsea director nowadays, and music PR suprema, Barbara Sharon. She really was Queen Bee of music publicity uh the 80s 90s noughties and still um but she's also been a chelsea fan for four decades even though she's originally from the states from chicago and now wonderfully as i say director of the club and like the legendary actor and director dickie attenborough before her barbara's brought the great and good of show business to stanford bridge over those decades that she's been a, a season ticket holder in the East Stand. As we will be hearing very shortly. But are we talking top talents or just famous for being famous, Rick? And <laughs> when was the enduring link between Chelsea and celebrity foot supporters first forged? Well, I think they're A-listers only, Gary, but you can make your own mind up. And the connection really goes back to our very earliest days. And really, I suppose you'd pin it on a benefit match that took place at Stamford Bridge for the family of the late Chelsea trainer, Jimmy Miller, that was staged on uh, in April 1907, when easily the biggest musical star of the day, George Roby, uh, provided the opposition team. At some stage, I might tell a story about George Roby and his latter years involving my mother, but I'll keep that under wraps for the time being because it's a bit gross. Um, <laughs> my mother was a dancer, you see, so I've got a touch of the stardust in me, and my dad was a jazz singer, uh, for the record. Anyway, uh, Roby, uh, you may know he was known as the Prime Minister of Mirth, and nothing to laugh about with some of the Prime Ministers recently. Um and he actually played two reserve fixtures as uh, as a forward for Chelsea in 1907. And as a result, well, partly, but because of that association, it's he who is responsible for Chelsea being dubbed the music hall joke. That's what everyone talks about as being for many decades. Because the day the pensioners were promoted to Division 1 in 1907, he was on stage across London in uh, uh, the East End on stage doing his act and he made a joke that he'd only signed for Chelsea to keep us in the first division us having just been promoted uh, that's the first widely reported and I mean widely it was everywhere joke at our expense on a, on a musical stage so that's where the musical joke originally uh, comes from uh, of course all sorts of royalty supported Chelsea including Queen Elizabeth's dad George VI which added glamour at the time so we're going back to sort of the very early 1900s but it just kept on coming 
Yeah, and also back then, of course, we had the athletics track around the pitch. And understand yeah. that meant hosting annual sports days for the likes of the National Association of Theatrical Employees. So yeah, Stanford Bridge was literally a playground for showbiz. We've only <laughs> seen celebrity matches for charity. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, it was very much, I hate that phrase in our DNA, but it was part of our makeup. But I suppose the deal was closed when Jack Boyer, uh, who was steeped in showbiz, became a Chelsea director. Um, he was a variety impresario, and he owned the Granville Theatre, which was just round the corner from Stamford Bridge. And um, that was they, the theatre's various uh, acts that were performing that weekend were always advertised in the Chelsea Match Day programme. And um, Jack Boyer would bring all sorts of people from uh, those shows down to Stamford Bridge as guests. And pretty soon... The Stage, which for those that don't know is Britain's sort of weekly theatre newspaper, still going strong, I believe. And before long, they were breathlessly reporting this sort of latest constellation of stars spotted in Boyer's company and the director's box, um, sometimes up to like eight big names, and not just from Britain, but from America too. So forget West End musicals, Stamford Bridge in the 1940s was the hottest ticket in town. And didn't that same stage column mention about our old friend Bud Flanagan, responsible <laughs> for the post-war Stamford Bridge anthem strolling, which we almost ruined in the previous pod on Terrace Songs, <laughs> also bring a, bring a famous guest along to the bridge. Absolutely right, Gary. It was That was August 1948, and the stage marvelled that Flanagan took legendary US songwriter Hoagie Carmichael, um, I mean, a brilliant songwriter, Hoagie Carmichael, to see his first football match at, at Chelsea on, on a Saturday when the, the home team beat Middlesbrough. And um, uh, Jack Boyer was obviously the the man who invited both of those two along. Um, but as a club director, he enjoyed explaining the rudiments of the game, the stage said, to, uh, to Mr Carmichael. And he really was a huge name at that time, wasn't oh. he? This just a songwriter. He is one of the top, top. Just the Google him. The tracks, yeah. you know, Stardust, what a tune. Oh, Magnificent. And about that same time, an enduring love affair that would last a lifetime began when Oscar-winning actor-director Richard Attenborough came to Stamford Bridge. Yeah, Dickie, as everyone called him. Um, he was a budding young actor in 1947, and he was offered the role of Pinky, uh, this sort of young gangster in the pioneering British uh, gangster film Brighton Rock, an excellent black and white film from 1948 or so that everyone should go and see uh, on their whatever outlet it is, Netflix, whatever. Um, but he had taken a stage role in theatre, uh, but to the producers of the film felt he needed to sort of beef up a bit. Nice middle-class boy, looked a bit weedy, so they thought he needed to sort of train and toughen up. And they gave him a range of clubs that he could go and work out with. And he decided, because he lived in Chelsea, that and he, he'd been to Stamford Bridge before, he'd trained with Chelsea's players. And not only did he therefore become great friends with the players uh, that summer, but the association became so deep that in 1965, he was uh, made vice president of Chelsea Football Club, and he joined the board, the full board, four years later. And of course, all the time, he dragged his thespian pals along to games, you know, over those 
decades uh, that he was around her and such a great connection to have uh, at the club. I mean, when I first interviewed uh, Dickie Attenborough or Lord Attenborough, as he became, or Lordy, as his close friends called him, um, when I asked him about the some of the people that he'd introduced to Chelsea Football Club, he said, um, I think I took Frank Sinatra once to the bridge. I certainly took, he said, Larry, Ralphie, Johnny, Kenny, Jack, Ava. I'm thinking, well, I can just about keep up with Laurence Olivier, Ralph Richardson, Johnny Mills, uh, Kenneth Moore, Jack Hawkins, Ava Gardner. She was a great pal of my wife, you know. And um, he said, I think I took Duke one time. And I sort of thinking, well, look, I've just about caught up, but who the hell's Duke? Of course, that's John Wayne. I mean, <laughs> John Wayne at Stamford Bridge. Fantastic. Then he added, um, on one occasion, though, Steve McQueen wanted to meet the players. Steve McQueen. Uh, at that time, um, Steve, who'd starred actually with Dickie in The Great Escape, that marvellous film, was a god. And so Dickie said, so all, you, all you've got to say is, Steve McQueen would quite like to meet the players. <laughs> so I remember he's... reading, sorry, I, I remember reading Steve McQueen was almost a starstruck to meet the players such as Ozzy and the Cat. But isn't there a story about Sinatra and Chelsea too? Uh, yeah, well, this is another one from Dickie Attenborough. Uh, he, he, I can't do it justice. He told it so brilliantly. But uh, he was saying that one late one night, the phone rings uh, at home and uh, he answers and it's Frank Sinatra's valet ringing him uh, from the poolside at uh, Frank's mansion. So Dickie's thinking, oh, my God, what's up with Frank? Is Frank OK? And the, the valet says, sure, Frank's just having a drink by the pool. He just asked me to call to see how Chelsea got on today. Amazing. Old Blue Eyes himself following the Blues. I also love the story about our great midfielder, John Hollins, when he tells about Chelsea players and a certain musician in the mid-60s. Yeah. A few of us would often go up to Mills Music in Soho in the afternoon, so Ron Harrison would come and go, get some coffee, Reg. <laughs> then about three years later, Terry Venables, himself a crooner with the Joe Lost Orchestra, of course, is at one of Elton's big parties where this guy comes over to say hello and Terry can't recognise him because Reg has become Elton John and his hair was blue or green or something. I'm knowing with Elton John or Reg, get us a coffee, Reg, I love that. Well, in the Sweden 60s, of course, we were, Chelsea were kings of the King's Road and the players, match day ritual, just to show you how sort of broadly embedded they were in this celebrity culture. Their match day ritual started on a Friday with pasta at the trendy Alexander's restaurant, which was located in the basement of the Bazaar Boutique, which fashion aficionados will know was owned by iconic 60s designer Mary Quant and her husband, um, Alexander Plunkett Green. And, of course, just down the road, Michael Caine, Terence Stamp, Michael Crawford, etc., like the bright new wave of the London art scene, would amble down to the Chelsea matches after drinks at the Chelsea Potter on the King's Road. So it's all part of it. It was like an epicentre, really. Well, one showbiz episode many remember, especially men of a certain age for some reason, <laughs> is when Hollywood star Raquel Welch came to Stamford Bridge. <laughs> yeah, and still, it still amazes me that she agreed uh, to be photographed uh, on the set of a spaghetti western in Almeria in Spain by the famous photographer Terry O'Neill, who again was a Chelsea fan. Um, she agreed to be 
snapped, wearing a full Osgood 9 kit, including the boots and the gun and holster, weirdly. Um, but anyway, she had an affection for Peter Osgood, especially in Chelsea, more broadly. Um, and uh, But yes, you, the match you're talking about, there she was sitting in the old creaking North Stand for the Leicester game in November 1972. Even back then, um, you couldn't drink alcohol in, in the stands, um, but she insisted. And to avoid a scene, she was provided with a like a succession of brandies. And um, oddly, uh, she left before the end and she sort of teetered all the way along the side. I mean, I was there as well. I teetered all the way along the side of the pitch. Um, uh, there was a hoarding, uh, which was masking the demolition of the the main stand so there were no people behind it so she's walking all the way along the the sort of obvious focus of the crowd's attention and incredibly like halfway down she sort of stopped waved and shouted out oh goodbye Ozzy to Peter Osgood and he's he in the middle of a game he absent-mindedly waved back and he got some stick from from uh, Dave Sexton the manager for that and you, well, you can imagine the, the crowd's response um, I would also re- remind you, Rick, it was a dire nil-nil draw, if I yes. recall rightly. She was the Absolutely <laughs> Anyway, also in the early 70s, I remember there was a programme column, Stars in the Stands, that profiled Chelsea supporters who were some of the biggest names in British film, TV and theatre. Yeah. Many other likes of former days now, but I remember Charlie Drake, Michael Crawford, Arthur Askey, Bill Oddie from The Goodies, Rodney Buse from The Likely Lads. Yeah, plus the brilliant 1960s actress, Gigi Geeson, who would stroll down to games from her flat, which was a stone's throw away from Stamford Bridge. And in fact, when Peter Osgood went on strike, do you remember that in the sort of 1971? Um, That that year, um, uh, a picket started outside the bridge with supporters, dozens of supporters, holding placards, like a vigil in support of of Ozzy. And Judy Geeson, who was uh, this, you know, the iconic star of films such as To Sir With Love and Ten Rillington Place, um, went out of her apartment and served cups of tea to the protesters, which there's a lovely echo of that in 19, in, sorry, in 2005, because when we had the parade after winning the Premier League uh, under Mourinho in 2004-05, and the parade was going around the Chelsea area, Nigella Lawson uh, lives on one of the streets that the open top bus went past and she tweeted that the players could stop off the cake at her house if she wanted because she's a Chelsea fan as well. We've had strong music associations as well. We mentioned Bud Flanagan, but in the 1960s, the Rolling Stones lived nearby in Edith Grove and a couple of them went to games. The epicentre of punk was just around the corner and Joe Strummer from the the Clash was a blue, as is Paul Weller. In fact, the Jam's first ever London gig was at Stamford Bridge. Absolutely true. And were you at the bridge when Culture Club shot their official video for Medal Song? Oh, uh, yes. Was filmed there. And Mikey, the bassist, who was a Chelsea fan, uh, again, a bit like Raquel Welsh in full kits, <laughs> was sort of had to sort of do this bit of action where he dribbled and then shot a goal. And he kept missing uh, to cat calls from the shed end. And then, if you remember, uh, as they walked off by Boy George, was showing two fingers to us in the crowds. 
Yeah, I thought that went down really well, actually. They were very <laughs> reserved in their response to him. Um, and then, of course, we had lead singer Suggs and drummer Woody of Madness. They've been huge fans of the blues. Suggs, of course, recorded our 1997 FA Cup anthem, Blue Day, which we'll hear more about from our guest star, Barbara Sharon, in a minute. Yeah, and also in the 90s, the big battle of Britpop, do you remember, between Oasis and Blur, uh, with Man City fans, the Gallagher brothers on one side, and Chelsea season to get all Phil Daniels and... Uh, and Damon Albarn on the other. Phil Daniels not being a member of Blur, but an honorary one. <laughs> and um, uh, those two bands went head-to-head -head in 1995 to determine who were the kings of Britpop. Pleasingly, uh, Blur's single country house outsold Roll With It by, I think, 274,000 units to 216,000. Or, to put it another way, in that battle of the Britpop, Chelsea beat Manchester City 4-3. Have we beat them since, Rick? <laughs> yeah, just a few times. Like in really important things like European Cup finals. Well, then, though, Chairman Ken Bates was more circumspect about the club's celebrity connections. He was. <laughs> I mean, there were those famous public run-ins he had with, a, with the management teams of Phil Collins and Rod Stewart, yes. <laughs> who were after freebies for big games. Well, Ken reckoned when he took over in, uh, in 1982 as chairman of Chelsea, the crowd for the first match against Oldham was 14,000. But more than 700 people that were there on complimentary tickets, which is ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, Chelsea were losing 12 grand a week and 5% of that gate was freebies. Um, the next game that he managed to trim that down to below 100. And um, there was a, a column that he wrote, you know, he had that uh, very controversial column he used to write in a programme. And in 2000, he sort of touched on this topic because it had kind of happened again. And he wrote about still meeting celebrities who had followed the club for years without expecting any special treatment. Um, that's a little dig at the, like I said, uh, well, like you said, Rod Stewart and Phil Collins and the like who had tried to tap the club for tickets. And he said, I believe any charter for scroungers, <laughs> charter for scroungers <laughs> is wrong. If I go to a pop concert, hmm, want a video or go to the theatre, I don't ask for a free freebie. I pay full price. And I believe that should apply to celebrities, some of whom are only famous in their own bathroom mirror. That's them told. Which brings us neatly to this week's guest, one of the UK's most important music PRs and recently appointed director of her beloved Chelsea, Barbara Sharon. She's probably the closest a club have come to a celebrity board member since Dickie Attenborough. But as Rick found out, she'd far prefer to be known simply for being proper chills. All right, everybody. Producer Jake here. Jumping in really quick. Ad break time. And then into the incredible interview with Barbara Sharon and Rick. Uh, I think Gary set it up perfectly. Proper chills. Thank you to our sponsors. And we'll be right back. If you're bored of the US Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you with over 5,000 plus server options. No show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue, you can receive a huge discount on a two year plan plus one free month. 
We all love to binge, but look, privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk when you use our 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. You can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check out my link again. That's nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today. Okay, well, I'll start, I'll start the interview. I mean, you and I go back to the 80s when I was a young music journalist at Guardian City Limits, Q and all the rest of them. And you were the doyen of publicists. Um, and I remember you as like I a really... I still am. <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, what I remember is you were a really smart negotiator of that sort of delicate dance between the egos of the, <laughs> the artist and the journalist. Um, firm but fair, I always thought. You batted for both sides, really. And working with the the great and the good... And it's all there in your new autobiography, Access All Areas, um, including lots about Chelsea. Yes. Always. Um, well, you know, I um, I write about in the book how I got into Chelsea. Uh, the first four years I lived in the UK, I didn't even know about football, mm-hmm. but I always liked sports. I used to go to the baseball in the States, even though a lot of people wouldn't call that a sport. And um, That's Chicago Cubs, yeah? Yeah, Chicago Cubs. I um, I lived in Chelsea, and um, I was a music journalist. And then I wrote a book on Keith Richards, and he let me stay at his house. He was in the states, out of the country, uh, to write the book, which was really inspiring in West Wittering. And there was only about three or four TV stations at the time, and there was nothing on midweek except for midweek sports special. I started watching it. I think Arsenal were having annoyingly a very good season. And um, (laughs) when I got back to London, it was the end of um, a season, but I started to, I lived on in Chelsea near Sloan Square and I started to go to games um, for a couple of years, just dragging people that didn't really care to games. Um, So these are just like friends or work colleagues? Yeah, friends, um, you know, then someone introduced me to Paul Conroy, who was looking for someone to go go with to football. Um, a couple of years later, we met Suggs. I, I used to see at football because, of course, Paul knew Suggs from working with Madness. And um, and Andy Fletcher, uh, sadly now no longer with us. Yeah, the late, great Andy Fletcher of Depeche Mode, obviously, yeah. Yeah, Andy and Grania sat with me up until, well, up until when Andy passed. Mm-hmm. And that's the East End was your territory, wasn't it? East End until this season. Now I'm oh. now I'm on, on the board. I sit in the director's <laughs> box. <laughs> that's proper promotion. That Why is. wouldn't you? <laughs> but yeah, um, so yeah, so since then, you know, my biggest probably claim to fame with Chelsea was doing putting Blue Day together. When I was at Warner Brothers, the uh, 97 FA Cup song, um, which was pretty much until recent events, one of the highlights of my life. But um, 
everything that's happened to me this year has surpassed that. Well, I'm going to ask you about that. And uh, maybe one of the protagonists in that song uh, will be the answer to one of my questions. But I was going to ask you about Stamford Bridge, because when you started going, like uh, mid to late 70s... I actually started I started going to the games um, late 70s okay. um, when we were a little bit of a yo-yo in and out of the old first division. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember when we, in the early 80s, when we won um, to go up to the first division, we beat Leeds and they the fans smashed the scoreboard. He, he the the Leeds fans, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the following season, they didn't even fix it. So <laughs> for one whole season, we didn't even have a scoreboard. When I first used to go to Stamford Bridge, the souvenirs were sold in a porta cabin yeah that's right. and they were things like frilly knickers and yes. inflammable knickers and lighters something like oh, i scored with chelsea or something i can't remember uh, yeah. probably <laughs> and then uh, but yeah but you stuck i mean and also at that time there was a lot of uh, chelsea were associated with hooliganism and racism on the terraces and things but you stuck with it why why did you stick with chelsea all that time oh i think well first of all once something's your club they're your club you cannot change mm-hmm. and also as you know it was in the 80s um it was before the great advent of tv where you could just watch football all day long yeah, yeah. um but there's still nothing like going to a game you know live football is there's nothing that's better. And you mentioned Paul Conroy, and I, I, I know Paul. And um, Paul obviously is a, a like yourself, a, a big uh, music executive in the UK. And you know he was responsible for signing the Spice Girls and all these sorts of things. And you sat next to him for a lot of the time. He said you were always wrapped up really warm, in, <laughs> and that you were very demonstrative, and you really got into. This ball. It's that passion, isn't it? I'm also very, very positive. I hate negativity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in life as well as in football, um, I almost always think we're going to win. I don't see how you can go to a game thinking you're going to lose. <laughs> it seems, um, you know, counterproductive. But, um, yeah, you know, my worst is when you sit with people when you're winning 1-0 and, they're, and it's like 10 minutes gone and they're like, I wish it was the 90th minute. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that what the, the topic that this episode is of famous CFC is covering is the kind of showbiz connection. Were you aware that Chelsea had this long tradition of showbiz associations like Dickie Attenborough and Steve, bringing Steve McQueen, Frank Sinatra, John Wayne and people like that? Uh, no. You know, I wasn't really aware of anything except it was the nearest ground to me. So uh, uh, that's yeah. why I went. And I was yeah. lucky I could have lived in Tottenham. But um, <laughs> thank God I didn't. Um, <laughs> you know, um, no, I wasn't aware of it. And, um, you know, um, Richard Attenborough's son, Michael, um, there was a period in the Bates era um, where Michael went a lot and his wife, Karen, and I know them. But uh, no, and I think the showbiz moniker, maybe in the past, but there's probably clubs that are way more show busy than us. <laughs> well, I suppose, and also the other thing is, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because, um, you know, having a celebrity fan base, as people called it, and we certainly were the, the showbiz well, there was team all that in the Road 70s. And all that, Absolutely, yeah. you know, Raquel yeah. Walsh being that at games. That was before and, my time. No, exactly. But... 
it's a double-edged sword in a way, isn't it? Because it's um, as much the kind of the fakery and freeloading tag as the glitz and the glamour. And you being one of the best PRs in the in the UK, what's your take on that as an image for a club like Chelsea? I think it's so long ago. Um, I don't think we have that image at all anymore, and I don't think we've had it for a long time. And even the supporters we have, you know, I think people use Brian Adams and Phil Collins. They used to say, I've never seen them at football. Um, you know, um, I think also, you know, like Damon Albarn, you know, I think the kind of fans we have are just like normal people. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, there's that great shot of, of, um, on Getty, I think it is of Damon on his scooter with his Parker on collecting his ticket for the FA Cup semi-final or final or something from the, from the box office, just a normal supporter, you know. <laughs> Uh, happens to be such a, a talented musician. You mentioned about um, who was. I think your there's a close connection in the area though. With I know someone who's very close to you, Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones. Um, they lived in the area. They lived in Edith Grove. The Beatles lived around the corner. There was there's an association with that, particularly in the swing in sixties, with uh, those British bands that were taking over the world. That was the proximity to Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I mean, that was before my time. I was in Chicago growing up. <laughs> Let's talk about this, the Blue Day, this great moment for you to, your twin passions coming together. How did it sort of come about? Oh, um, uh, the guy that wrote the song, uh, Mike Canaris, um, I was working at Warner Brothers and Suggs had just done uh, a solo album uh, for Warner Brothers. And I'd known him anyway, socially. And Mike brought the song in um, just before when we had, I guess that we had probably just got, or maybe we're at the semis of the FA Cup that year. And he said he thought it would be perfect for Suggs. And I talked to people that ran the company into, I was in the press office, um, you know, paying for the record and doing the record. So, um, so Suggs and I found ourselves in a studio on a Sunday with the whole Chelsea team, <laughs> which was amazing. Most of them couldn't sing, but it was, you know, those days of FA Cup final songs were really kind of, there was yeah. a kind of innocence and naivety yeah. probably about it that was really um, charming. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you know, they came and did the song and then, um, you know, Dennis Wise was the captain. Um um, you know, Rudhill, it was the manager. He wouldn't let them go on top of the pops. So um, that kind of slightly ruined our chances of... What was that? Just because there was no kind of training preparations? And, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, this, that would have been post, I think. Uh, well, mm. anyways, around the time of the um, uh, cup final. Viali was in the team. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. And then we went to training um, and uh, shot a video with Mark Hughes was in the team then. So, um, yeah, it was really great memories um, and lots of fun. I mean, winning the – I never thought we'd win the FA Cup, let alone uh, the Champions League and the Premier League. So that win in 97 was so massive for us all, especially after we'd all gone to Wembley and I think it was 94 when we lost 4-0 to Man U, which was awful. 
Um, the rain that you, day. Oh. Yeah. Well, it was sunny when we got there. Gavin Peacock hit the post. And, yeah. The um, bar, wasn't it? Yeah. And, the, and he'd, and then he'd it beaten, was the bar. He'd, he'd scored both winners home and away against Man United that season as well, if you remember. Yeah. And I always see Gavin, I always say to him, it never goes <laughs> in, does it, Gavin? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, no, I mean, we won. And when everyone sang the song, I mean, it's a great song. I think we're definitely. Do for another song, though. I was going to say, why do teams, why do clubs never do a, a Champions League final song? You know, the oh, FA Cup you know, final I thing. think the problem <laughs> is there's just, there's no time. No. You know, the, at the, you know, especially a season like this when, you know, they're only human, the players, that there's just way too many games. You've merged Chelsea and your music career before. Not just with Blue Day, but also you're placing Madonna in a Chelsea shirt on the front page of the Sun. Well, not in a Chelsea shirt, with a Chelsea shirt. When Rocco, her son, was born, she was in L.A. and she had an album coming out. And I went to L.A. with um, Dominic Mohan, who worked at the Sun at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I had gotten a little Chelsea top that said Rocco for him. (laughs) And just as we were going to say hi to Madonna, Dom said, which shows you what a good uh, reporter Dom is. Dom said, can I, can I say the sun got this for her? And I was like, sure. And like two days later, it was on the front page of the paper. So, result. Well, I expect Guy was pleased because he's a Chelsea fan, isn't he? Guy Ritchie? He, uh, they say. I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you were talking about, um, there's a brilliant line in your book, Access All Areas, where you talk about Keith Richards walking into the room and rock and roll comes in after Walks him. in after him, yeah. yeah. Um, to, to misquote that, uh, which Chelsea player walks in a room with rock and roll strolling in behind him, in your opinion? I don't know, you know. Um, Dennis Wise? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Dennis Wise. Certainly Dennis Wise probably had that punk attitude. <laughs> you know, these days, a lot of the players are rock and roll just in terms of the wardrobe. You know, yeah. Reese James has got pretty good taste in yeah, in, in tops and jackets. Um, good shout. <laughs> and hairstyles, yeah. You know, probably my favorite era was Mourinho's first time mm. managing us when we won the league. Oh, well, there's you know, a rock and roll coach. He was oh, a yeah. rock and roll coach. <laughs> Tantrums and all. <laughs> um, that's why we loved him. But, um, yeah, you know, lamps and, and um, you know, I guess – Frank Lampard's probably definitely my um, favorite all-time Chelsea player. Um, but, you know, that season, you know, was when we had, um, you know, the two wingers. Oh, Duff and Robin, nuts. Yeah, Robin, yeah, it was amazing. And it's funny, you know, Hazard obviously um, was great, but he seems to have kind of slightly disappeared into the... Yeah, not the same since the injuries. No, we were actually fortuitous, lucky that um, he moved on when he did. But um, no, I think, you know, when winning, I guess winning the Champions League, I went to Munich in 2012. That was like, you know, it was such a, you know, we had so many players injured and suspended. And it was a miracle that we'd won. Absolutely. um, (laughs) <laughs> and then it was a miracle, actually, when we beat City, we were so not the favorites. So, but I think I'm really excited about the future. Um, I went to Cobham for my first time 
uh, last month. And uh, it's just, it's as fantastic as you think it is. Yeah, it's just a great an facility. Amazing place, yeah. And I think it, there's plans to even improve it, yeah. improve it more. Which there's is, plans to incredible. improve everything, even the team. <laughs> How does it feel, though, for you, Mike, to have gone, you know, to be this uh, supporter for, for so long and and then to be given the uh, opportunity to become a director? I mean, that's incredible. You know, it's funny. I was listening to um, Talk Sport the other day, and Simon Jordan, they had a, a guy from the Chelsea, from the Man U Supporters Trust on talking about Man U's potential sale. And Simon Jordan was just mocking the fact that a fan could be on a board. And it, as if fans are all idiots and, mm. and 12 years old. Yeah. Um, I, I think they were real smart when they, you know, when they were trying to buy the club, um, the Todd Bowley consortium to get two fans on the board obviously even smarter because one of them was me but um <laughs> well i happen to know both of you you and danny so i was delighted that you two uh were picked yeah well uh, it was because of danny danny um knows jonathan goldstein and that's how danny got involved and they wanted a woman um and danny suggested me so i've known danny for over 20 years and it works really well but the way Simon Jordan was so dismissive of fans, um, you know, I have my own business and Danny is a lord and a successful political commentator. Um, we know just as much about football as the next person, probably a lot more. But uh, it's really exciting. Um, it it, it kind of was surreal, but it, the reality became um, real from day one and um, feels great. I went to the staff um, Christmas party last week and did the raffle with Graham Potter. And, you know, if you would have told me that a year ago, I would have laughed. <laughs> I think but you both, both of you as fans bring expertise. You from years of, of handling publicity and, you know, egos and, uh, and situations that are really similar to the ones that clubs face. Um, There's a lot of similarities between the music business and uh, football. In fact, football, some of the best bits of the football um, business are like the music business used to be, um, the social part of it. You know, the traditions um, in Champions League games, usually the directors of the club like uh, Salzburg or uh, Zagreb, we would have dinner with them the night before, and then we have dinner with them in London when they're here. It's a really lovely tradition, and did have the whole boardroom, you know, tradition of both um, sets of directors and owners meeting with each other for uh, food prior to the game and socializing. It's it's really great. That sort of thing doesn't really happen in the music industry anymore, does it? We no, that's why I say it used to be exactly. Um, and how do you think your outlook has changed uh, towards the club since you've got in amongst the weeds, so to speak? No, um, you know, um, I don't think it will either. It's fat. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with football. I love it. I watch almost all games that are on TV. Um, in fact, I went to 18 games from August 6th. I went to almost every away game except for Leeds and, um, and City in the Cup. Um, and I missed one home game, so it was a ridiculous run. <laughs> but um, 
No, I think the fact that I work with, uh, I've spent my whole career working with famous people and um, big personalities that run uh, major companies is a really good um, education for this. And plus, coupled with just passion um, for the sport and for the club. Now, I'm not going to ask you about to try and get a scoop on January signings, but as a club director, if you could sign one showbiz fan from another club, um, who would it be and why? I don't think I really have any. I like Chelsea just the way it is. I'm really not that keen on us having tons of showbiz fans. <laughs> um, I've taken um, uh, artists that I work with to football um, in the past, and and certainly this season, um, I took Robert Plant to the Wolves game. Uh, and, he's a Wolves uh, fan, of course, yeah. Yeah, and I took Ali Murs, who's a Man United fan, to the Man U game. Um, I've taken the Foo Fighters guitarist Chris to Chelsea Arsenal. Um, but, yeah, I'm not bothered about us. Uh, football, football and celebrity don't need to necessarily <laughs> live together. I know it was me thinking Mark Ronson was a proper Chelsea. And, uh... Well, Mark Ronson's dad is a season ticket. Ah, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, he, he sits um, in the East End. He's had a season ticket forever. Ed Sheeran's dad as well, I think. Ed Sheeran's dad's Chelsea. Well, Ed's an well, Ipswich fan, I think. But yeah, um, yeah um, Mark's been to Chelsea before. I mean, if Mark supported any team, it would be Chelsea. But and he's not that much of a football fan. Have you ever fallen out with any of some of your closest music friends, like Elvis Costello or Rod Stewart, over football? No, I mean, Elvis, um, especially during um, the pandemic, Elvis and I talked about football just constantly. I mean, he is as Liverpool as we are Chelsea. (laughs) And he's so, you know, if I just published a book of his emails, it would probably be a bestseller because he (laughs) writes really well and he's really funny about football. He doesn't like Chelsea, though, does he? Let's face it. (laughs) I know. I once got an award from him at an industry do and I said, I don't want, I never thought I'd get an award from someone that said, I don't want to go to Chelsea. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay. And now where can we uh where can we get your book? Oh, it's in most bookstores and it's definitely on Amazon. Uh, and it's published by White Rabbit. That's been brilliant talking to you. Barbara. Yeah, that's been great. If I don't see you, have a lovely Christmas. And you. All the best. And thanks so much for doing everything you're doing for the club. Yeah, no, it's real. I think it's, we've got really, really, I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid here. The owners uh, and directors, it's a great team. And I think um, the future is really, really great for us. It's really exciting. Excellent. And maybe you'll be sitting in a different stand in a couple of years' time. Who knows? (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Take care. All right, everybody. Producer Jake, one more time to say another quick ad break. And then we're back with Rick and Gary to wrap up everything Hollywood and Chelsea. Thank you so much to our sponsors. They're what let us do the show. They're what let us bring in Barbara and other incredible individuals from Chelsea history. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. What I really liked about that was you think of all the places she's been to, the people she's she's known and the, the highs of her fantastic career, but she's always had that time for Chelsea in her life. And she speaks now with the same sort of feeling and insight that, that we can all associate with as Chelsea supporters. And I think that's magnificent. And she's now a director of the club, which is yeah. brilliant too. I mean, I wonder whether part of me, you know, she grew up in Chicago and I wonder whether... 
one of the reasons that Barbara felt so at home at the bridge to begin with, not just the atmosphere, the camaraderie and just passion for, for football, which she just fell in love with, was that, that she, and she lived nearby, of course, at the time, but uh, but maybe the old Stamford Bridge, which was so open and spacious, was a little bit like the Chicago Cubs baseball ground, Wrigley Field. I think there is something in that that, that probably helped her, her belong, you know, a bit. Uh, I'm not sure. She did say that I mean, she's very sort of, uh, how would you say, dismissive of the showbiz culture at Stamford Bridge. But we have to say that even recently, you've seen loads of film people, are blues fans that are seen at Stamford Bridge, Sienna Miller, Jason Fleming, Guy Ritchie, of course, Madonna's husband, Jason Bourne, writer-director Paul Greengrass, who, who bought, um, brought Matt Damon to a game. And then, of course, you have people like William Shatner and Danny DeVito always tweeting about Chelsea. Will Ferrell, who's been often wearing a Chelsea shirt, plus the great Samuel L. Jackson was at the bridge in... 2014, with season ticket holders David Williams and his wife, Laura Scott, wife at the time, Laura Scott, who first met at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Williams, of course, is the best-selling author in the UK. And when he, at one of his book launches, he invited Chelsea pensioners and their grandchildren along, although I'm not sure you'd call him proper Chelsea. I mean, what do you think about our association with showbiz that it... Do we, does it make us sound fickle and and sort of fly by night and shallow? Possibly. I mean, detractors are always going to point to that. And I suppose if I'm being selfish, I'd sooner pick out the ones I like and the <laughs> others can go to Arsenal. But beggars can't be choosers. I suppose what I really want, though, is for any of these fans, and I've got no reason to doubt their loyalty to Chelsea, um, but the ones that have shown loyalty over a wide period of time, in other words, Pre-2005, then I've got a bit more time for. Hey, I think, you know, this this showbiz connection, it's just part of our club culture. And like you, as long as they love Chelsea, they're more than welcome. Absolutely. Anyway, Access All Areas by Barbara Sharon, published by Orion, and an excellent read, is available in bookshops and online. You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and Henrik Glanville, with very special thanks to our guest, Chelsea director and PR legend, Barbara Sharon. Now, if you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us and subscribe on whichever app you're using, and help us promote Chelsea's heritage. Thanks for stopping by. Come on, Chelsea.